1: Hello and welcome to the Raptors Weekly Podcast. I'm your host, Samson Folk, and today a very special guest, one of my favorite people to have on. The conversations are always very rewarding for me personally and hopefully for the audience, although I'm typically uh, being hedonistic with this podcast and just having conversations that I like. I hope that it ends up benefiting you, the listener. But yes, Joe Wolfond, who I've had on many times before, enjoy the conversations immensely. An NBA feature writer over at The Score Also, on top of that, maybe the best league-wide podcast in Pound the Rock, it's in competition with Bouncing Around, which some of you may or may not have heard of. And on top of that, uh, of all the writers covering the Raptors, perhaps the closest to being on the Raptors 905, a 905 hopeful is what he's referred to himself as for many years now. Joe, how in the hell are you?
0: I'm great, man. After that intro, uh, I I appreciate the the kind words and certainly being in the conversation with bouncing around is high praise um and you know the 905 tryout listen maybe maybe I'll get out there for another tryout one of these days but i uh, was was disappointed to not get a call back i'll
1: say that we'll go together we'll run two man actions and we'll see where that gets us how do you feel about that yeah i mean which end of the pick and roll would you prefer to play in that setup I'll do either. I I feel like we'll probably categorize based on size. So once we meet each other in person, we can kind of, you know, we'll give each other the up and down and decide who plays what, who is the Dame and who is the Lamarcus.
0: I will say I never like I think I can set a decent screen, but I never figured out what to do with myself after that. Like the 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 timing on the roll or the pop, I just could never get down. I would usually just end up it was it was sort of like the Marcus all, right? Like the the, the pick and plant where you kind of just stop like a couple of feet from where you set the screen and see, and see if anybody can kind of hit you with a pass in space. Um, but I never quite knew what to do after that. So maybe just by necessity, I'll, uh, I'll be the PNR ball handler because I I
1: don't know that I can do anything else. Well, sure. I I've been critiquing Pascal Siakam's uh, the routes he takes as a role man and his pacing far too much for me not to get out there and do more of it myself. So it'll, it'll help me to be in his shoes for a bit, but that's kind of where I wanted to start the conversation with the Raptors is Pascal. And I'm going to ask you some leading questions right away. So how do you feel about where you stand on the Pascal stuff? Do you feel like you have a good idea of what his game is?
0: I think so. Um, it's actually, it's interesting. You mentioned kind of his his struggles uh, as a screener, because I I've always wanted to see more of him as a screener, and I felt like his skill set would be really conducive to him mm-hmm. being a role man. But that's contingent on him actually figuring out how to do it effectively. And I think sometimes maybe I've overlooked that in my zeal to to kind of have him playing that end of the pick and roll a little bit more often. Like there is an art to it that he definitely hasn't mastered you know the timing um especially I'm like you know I think his screens can be um I don't know a little bit flimsy at times Mm -hmm, as well mm -hmm. um but I think it's more like the pacing and the timing of it for me where um I don't know he just just, whether it's whether it's something that he's worked on and just hasn't quite nailed down yet or or something that he hasn't really put a lot of work into because he's been more focused on the ball handling and the face-up game. Um, it's I guess it's a little disappointing as somebody who has wanted to see him in that role more often uh, to see that he hasn't really developed that side of his
1: game much. Is What is the antonym of zeal? Is it disinterest, <laughs> distaste? Yeah, disinterest seems right. Okay, um, he, he has a disinterest in screening and making con- like he he could not care less. And I understand it from the point of view of what well, he's been walking out there the past two and a half years and the Raptors have been saying isolate at a frequency that puts you in the top five <laughs> in the NBA. And he's saying, well, I guess I'll work on my bag not yeah. my screen craft. And so I understand it from that point of view. But I share the zeal with you, brother. We we are the zeal brothers when it comes to Pascal and screen setting. But uh, we maybe started out a bit harsh because I know we both really, really like Pascal and have both been, I think, exceedingly positive about his game relative to some of our peers in the media and certainly relative to the fan base. So Pascal, what, what are your cliff notes on his game uh, maybe so far this year?
0: Um, I think there there was definitely some choppiness in the first couple of games, but that was, to me, completely expected. And I honestly think, he, if anything, has probably surpassed my expectations. Because even in the the Brooklyn game, like the, the Celtics game was kind of rough for everybody, including Pascal. But in the Brooklyn game, just from a process perspective, I really loved everything he was doing. I liked the aggressiveness with which he was getting into the post, um, whether it was dribbling himself into post-ups or, or ducking in, like, I I just, the shot diet was exactly what I would have wanted it to be. And he was missing some bunnies. Um, and maybe there was some stuff where the timing was a little, a a little bit off and like the handle, I don't know, maybe I I was a a tad bit disappointed with the handle last year as well. So it's not like Mm -hmm. it's a new problem. Uh, it would be great to see him tighten that up, but, you know, given the fact that he doesn't have the tightest handle in the world, it's still pretty impressive that he can more or less get himself wherever he needs to go on the court. Right. Um, and I think so far he's done that. I think the Raptors have done a pretty good job of getting him the ball on the move as well. Like they've had him um, sort of surveying his options and creating like off of handoffs, off of pin downs, coming out of the corner where they're getting him into the middle of the floor. Uh, I think his his decision-making in the middle of the floor has been really good. And that's that's where he's best, right? Like he's more of an inside-out playmaker and even an inside-in playmaker. Like his interior mm-hmm. passing is quite good as opposed to outside-in. Like you're not going to see him make a ton mm-hmm. of the corner skips uh, or diming up cutters and passing them into layups necessarily. But once he gets into the middle, I think he's really good at assessing his options and making the right play. So. I think all that's been positive. Um, It's I find it's like a little bit hard to judge defensively because with the Raptors scheme, it's very chaotic. And like, unless you're really kind of breaking it down frame by frame, it, it can be tough to see who's really at fault when there's a breakdown. And I think the Raptors defense in general over the past few games has been kind of bad. And I think there are some plays that you could point to where he's been a a culprit, but I, you know, I'm definitely not thinking that he's been a chief culprit by any means. Like I think he's been pretty fine at that end of the floor, but um, I mean, even he's talked about it uh, about just like his unfamiliarity playing with the guys that he's currently playing with and people probably expect that that's going to manifest at the offensive end, but especially with the way that the Raptors play defense, I would imagine that it manifests just as much, if not more so at the defensive end of the floor.
1: Mm Mm-hmm what you brought up with the outside in passing, if anybody listening watched the game uh, last night against the Pistons, Cade Cunningham, basically like getting a screen in the middle of the floor, getting a pound dribble and looking the tag man out Mm -hmm. of the lane and then finding Isaiah Stewart for a bucket like that, like that's a terrific outside or outside in pass. And that's just stuff that Pascal has never really shown an inclination for, but the dump offs and particularly, you know, to reference our zeal for the pick and roll, like imagining Pascal fully wielding his, you know, his inclinations as a passer in the short roll seems like hell yeah. He he did have one classically Pascal bucket last night. I think it was the end one towards the end of the game. Sadiq Bay kind of crowded his space. He took the bump. He put up a little floater and it was nothing but net. And so that was a super, super positive thing because those shots seemed few and far between last year. It was such a removal from the dominance around the rim that he showcased in his ascent from most improved player to all NBA. It seemed like there was a magnet in the ball and a magnet in the rim for when he was around the bucket. And so a return to that would be cool. Scotty Barnes seems to have taken some of that Uh, safe to say he's good though. He's a good player. He's a max player. And what I'm wondering about is the fit of all of this, because With OG Ananobi, with Fred VanVleet, and we'll get the cap stuff out of the way early. Both those guys, everybody is asking for more, rightfully so. But you don't have to worry about how their contracts infringe upon roster construction because they can kind of, they're portable, they're scalable, particularly with their shooting and their defense, right? So you don't have to worry about that kind of stuff. And they're both on, I would say, being underpaid currently they're they're on really high value contracts for the team. With Pascal, he would have to be performing very good consistently to earn his contract so I don't care. But just from a team building perspective, from a roster constructive perspective, there is some wondering if he is, I don't know, overlapping with Scotty and how does he affect Scotty's ascent and Scotty's, you know, uh, development. And this is something I talked about with Lewis last week where, you know, we were talking about Jalen Brown and Jason Tatum and how they grew differently because of the presence of one another and how that's almost a thing that's guaranteed to happen and how OG and Pascal have also grown differently, probably in some cases because of one another and how maybe that's something we don't look at enough. I'm curious what you think about how Scotty and Pascal, and it certainly doesn't have to be bad. You can go full optimism with this, how they impact each other.
0: I do think there's something to the fact that you pair two players like that together. And I mean, I'll take it back, I guess, to what you were saying about, about Pascal, his theoretical ability and I guess so far his practical inability to like weaponize what should be a pretty excellent skill set for like a short roller. And I think if he could do that, there are, would be a lot of interesting stuff, you know, high, low stuff, um, snug and lay downs for sure. Yeah. That that you could run with him and Scotty. And, you know, I think actually Scotty has himself looked pretty decent as a short roller so far. So maybe that is the role that he takes on and you have Pascal working on the ball or off the ball in those situations. Um, but Yeah, I think maybe it's just like there there does seem to be a bit of a failure of imagination sometimes where people will see two players like that that are kind of similar and specifically two players that uh, don't have a ton of off ball gravity, or at least don't generate, you know, a, a five alarm fire type of threat as spot up shooters. And the feeling is, well, they kind of overlap, they don't space the floor. And it makes it tough to build around. There's some truth to that, but I think there's also a lot of stuff that you can do with two players like that who have pretty versatile skill sets who can both handle the ball, who can both pass and who can both really finish. Um, It's just going to mean constructing a different type of offense. And like, there's this, there's a real like stigma or I feel like it's become pejorative. Like the, the idea of the dunker spot and somebody being there, it's like seen as a bad thing. And I feel like um, everything that's happened in Philly over the last few years has, has poisoned the discourse about the dunker spot a little bit. <laughs> um, and maybe like the way that the bucks used it last year on their way to a championship has started to tilt that back. But like Scotty Barnes is really, really effective playing out of the dunker spot. Mm-hmm. Um, we see that on the offensive glass, the way that he can finish and also the way that he moves around that space. Like there was a play that I highlighted in that Philly game where um, he was on the left block and Uh, I think it was Fred and Precious who were running a pick and roll on the right side of the floor. And Precious was supposed to be the release valve. It didn't work out. Fred didn't make that pass. And like instantly Scotty made that read and he uh, relocated like from the left side of the floor to the right to be that release valve and made a touch pass to Precious who started to cut. And unfortunately, Precious dropped the pass. But I think like he has shown a, a real ability to make good use of that space. and. So I think there's a lot you could do with him there and, and Pascal on the floor, whether it's, you know, running the show. Um, it, it's just like he would have to spot up probably a little bit more than if he was playing next to like uh, a guy who who could space better than Scotty can space. But that doesn't mean that there is like an untenable fit there by any means. Um, but it does... I mean, it it changes uh, the way that the rest of the, of the roster has to look, I think in order for you to be effective. And I do, you know, you mentioned the cap stuff and, and the challenges that that could lead to. I think my big concern about the Raptors right now, and I guess looking toward the future is like the backcourt depth is pretty suboptimal. And how are you really going to fix that in, in such a way that um, that a kind of pulls all these pieces together because right now, like the, the extent to which that they're relying on Fred is, um,
1: mm-hmm.
0: I, that's just not going to work in the big picture.
1: Yeah, that, that is a really interesting, um, point that you bring up is, you know, we can worry all we want about the wings and how they fit, but guard play is still pretty important in the league and with Fred, you know, rightfully, uh, I think obj- probably objectively at this point has been the Raptors best player has been doing carry jobs night in and night out has just been phenomenal and punching above his weight in some categories that we just haven't seen before. Like shooting around 44% with his skill set, with his stature is like a hall of fame achievement. That is not easy to do at all. And the playmaking, I mean, given the type of, you know, rotations he creates from the defense and, you know, lack thereof, the fact that he's creating certain types of shots on certain volume is like incredible so yeah that is an interesting point is like how do they how do they change that but i do like that you bring up that yeah it is an imaginative pairing scotty and pascal if it's going to work and i think it's worth trying to figure out rather than trying to figure out you know i think a lot of people are thinking about okay this team in the future because raptors fans i do think calibrate to championship style team building now, not good style team building, at least in like the platonic sense, if you know what I mean, you win a championship, you start to think, okay, how do we get a team that gets their guarantee? And instead of, you know, for many years saying like, well, if we tweak, you know, Damar and Kyle, we get like a Damari Carroll, where does this team go? Can we take five games in the Eastern Conference Finals? Something to that, right? And it's really interesting to see how people will say like, okay, well, how do we maximize Scotty now? And when in reality, I think you want to keep trying to maximize Fred, Pascal, and OG currently and allow Scotty to grow kind of organically around those players because those are three unique skill sets that he'll continue to grow and work with. So I do like that you bring up like imagination as far as that goes. Uh, Do you have any ideas about shoring up the guard stuff? Is there anything you'd like to see from a team building or just get a guy perspective?
0: I mean... Yeah, it's, I guess it's hard to do without delving into specifics and like various trade frameworks that I've thought about probably too much. But <laughs> it's like, what are your options? Your options are to go the the draft and develop route or to explore the trade market. And, f- you know, for as much as I think the the fit between their current, you know, what I would consider to be their their four-man core right now in FRED, OG, Pascal, and Scotty, I certainly think that it, it could reach a point where to fully maximize the talent on hand, they feel like one of those forwards, and I don't think it's going to be Scotty. Uh, so, you know, between OG and Pascal, it might get to the point where it makes sense to trade one of those guys for preferably an all star caliber guard, one who can play with the ball in his hands, play off the ball as well. Because I think it's really, really meaningful that Fred has taken the strides that he has taken as a ball in hand guard, because that, I think there was probably a time where I was, you know, maybe not even that long ago where I was looking at this roster thinking, what we need is a real primary initiator to bump Fred back into his natural role as like an off guard. And I don't think that's necessarily the case anymore. I think it would help to have a guy who could spell Fred as a, as a primary creator for sure, but not to the extent that like you want Fred to be operating more as like a full-time shooting guard. I think it's, it can be the type of player who shares that responsibility, but it is more or less inter interchangeable. Um, You know, in, in kind of the way that Kyle and Fred were, but, I don't think, you know, at this point, given the strides that Fred's made, I don't think it even needs to be a player who um, brings the same level of playmaking that Kyle does for it to work. I just think there needs to be, I do think they need more ball handling. um, And I guess like you would want a player who in the half court can really puncture a defense. I feel like that is what the team is missing more than anything, because Mm -hmm. yes, OG and Pascal can make stuff happen out of the post. That's a, a fine way to initiate possessions and to generate advantages and good shots. But in, yeah, it, it's just tough to do that, like in high leverage spots. And obviously like, I, I think, you know, if you look at the Raptors offense this year, it's like ahead of where their defense is at. I think they're 11th in offensive efficiency now. Um, But that is driven very, very much by like their transition play. And if you look at the half court, last time I checked, they were bottom five in the league. I think that's probably come up since the Pistons game, but they were they were 26th in the league in half court offense before that. Because um, yes, like Fred's got a good handle, like OG isn't improving as a ball handler, Pascal can handle it, Scotty can handle it, but like you put those guys up against a set defense, and how many of them is like dynamic enough? with the ball in their hands to like force a scramble to bend defense. Like it's just him. Yeah. And so that's, you know, that's the thing that I think that they really need. And I don't know, no, I'm not going to throw any names out there. There there are a lot that are on the tip of my tongue Mm -hmm. that I would love to talk about and how they would fit with this team. But it's just, I I feel like if we go down that road, uh, it'll be, it'll be hard to pull us back out of it. So you can use your imagination and, and think about the type of guard that that would be um you know maybe one of them currently playing in sacramento uh or perhaps the one that the raptors had a chance to acquire at last year's trade deadline like somebody like that um who who is really able to uh to create meaningful advantages off the bounce
1: yeah i would i would say like zach Levine. Bradley Beal, Darren Fox, like those types of decent passers, but just, oh my God, they get right into the middle of things. And I'm not saying any of those guys end up on the Raptors, but there's a quite a few different guards that would help alleviate some of this stuff and particularly fit well next to uh, Fred. And that's 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 probably the, the biggest thing currently is who fits best next to Fred. And then you really maximize like a backcourt and that probably makes your team really good. There's also maybe something to be said about having a big man who can make some of uh, the the players on the roster relevant. Like a good pick and roll big man might be the the rising tide that lifts all ships for a couple players on the Raptors, right? Like really might help mm-hmm. revitalize some lineups. Maybe Malachi Flynn's, you know, just really rough start to his career basically because of context and a little bit because of, you know, a little bit of limitations on his end but like a good pick and roll big probably changes his fortunes rather quickly and stuff like that uh but yeah otherwise i think like you said it would be tough to pull us back in that's just wish casting about good players and all that um we can focus more so on the roster at hand though and i i actually i'll add quickly i would say my ideal version of events is that you get this full year for whatever the pascal scotty thing is and you evaluate afterwards. I know they're like fandom is fickle and people want to suggest things very quickly, but I do think it's important that Scotty and Pascal get a good slew of games to figure out the quirks and rhythms of one another, particularly Scotty, because Scotty wasn't cutting in, wasn't making Corey cuts at the very start. And he wasn't the number one release valve for OG's post ups at the very start but playing next to OG and his post-up initiation this is something that Scotty picked up on and Scotty's ability to kind of be a chameleon as you you know kind of laid out earlier that could prove to be very beneficial next to Pascal who as of right now is the best quote unquote advantage creator on the roster so i would just love them to have a full year see what intriguing things come of that and then you know start to evaluate for for anybody who cared what i thought but you wrote this big piece on uh, winning the possession battle. And I know recent events have kind of like taken the wind out of the sails of that, but you talked to Nick Nurse about it and he talked about this is something we're looking to do. We know that the winning percentage goes up the more possessions you get. And if you win that, what made you start looking into this and what's the most intriguing thing that came out of it? Uh, It's
0: kind of something I've been tracking since the second game of the season where uh, I think it was the second game, right? Where they just shellacked Boston. Mm-hmm. And that was the game, I think, where their possession advantage was the most dramatic. It was like in the 20s, like they were plus 23, I think, by the end of the game. Um, and I was interested from the start of the season in the offensive rebounding because it was something that Nick had talked about. And this idea of playing like this idea of this team being kind of big and small at the same time, you know, they don't have anybody taller than six, nine, but they're really big at the wing positions And I was interested, I was interested to see in like the kind of advantages that that could unlock. So once I saw that, like Nick, having talked about offensive rebounding as a focus and then then putting it into action so dramatically and then it sustained itself. Right. I think they're still number one in the NBA in offensive rebounding rate. So that hasn't slowed down. Um, And then the other side of the equation was going to be the turnovers. Like that's, that's the other way in which they're generating extra possessions uh, or in that case, I guess, taking possessions away from their opponents. Um, And it's, so all those factors are working together. It's like, they're, they're grabbing a ton of offensive rebounds. They're turning opponents over a ton and they're quite a low turnover team themselves. So that is adding up to them being, Um, I think when I wrote the piece, they were plus 8.3 in field goal attempts. Uh, I think they were plus seven last night in total shooting possessions. And that is helping them overcome the kind of shot making deficit uh, that I feel like they're facing on a lot of nights. So I'm just like, I think that's really interesting as a deliberate strategy to sort of jerry rig uh, like uh, a winning team
1: where here's here's my question sorry to cut you off but like the most fascinating thing is they're jerry-rigging it they are manufacturing these numbers whereas i think other teams came by them more naturally by proxy of the players on the roster their talent like and you like you have some fantastic quotes and insights in here about like picking gary trent talking about how they're picking up plays beforehand they know okay he's going to come off like a pin down this gives me an opportunity to jump stuff. And yes, they talk about having to pay for it, but what what do you think about them jerry-rigging it and trying to get to numbers maybe through like an inorganic way because yeah. those numbers say win, but they're, they're seven and seven right now. Like that is fascinating.
0: Yeah. And, and I mean, Nick even acknowledged, it's like, okay, well, we're were winning the possession battle by, you know, they're actually exceeding the, the number that, the, that he had kind of set as a benchmark, which was plus mm-hmm. five, but there's probably stuff that's going the other way, maybe as a result of some of the things that we're doing. And, um, I think like, I, I can't remember, like th- there was a discourse in hockey, like a, a couple years back where like the, the analytics were suggesting that just like taking a lot of shots was correlating with winning. And so there was this rise in teams just sort of like trying to like fire more shots toward the goal. And like it started to tilt the other way because the process behind it had changed where it wasn't coming organically and they were forcing stuff and like the, the quality of, of, of scoring chances was being diminished. And I think maybe there's a little bit of that happening here where if you do try to force it to the extent that they are, there's like a diminishing return. Mm-hmm. And so that's why you know I I asked about and wrote about some of the downsides where like they steal hunt more than probably any team I've watched this season, and that leads to them getting a lot of steals, but it also leads to them getting burned uh, on the times that they whiff. And I think we've seen a lot of that lately, for sure. Um, Gary probably being the the biggest offender, but like OG is gambling more than I've ever seen him gamble before, mm-hmm. and even Fred we've seen I think gamble and get burned for it. So like that's part of the way that um, we're seeing it come back to bite them a bit. And I'm, you know, even just talking about the defensive process as a whole, I've advocated for them scaling it back just in terms of the sheer aggressiveness. Um, the, I mean, I mean, you talked with Lewis on your last episode about why you feel like they are so aggressive about sending the help from the corner and, um, And the need to provide some some supplemental rim protection because they don't really have a traditional rim protector, but also because, um, you know, forcing missed layups tends to be the best way to create transition chances. They need in some ways to play that kind of defense to get their transition offense going. It's like their their offensive limitations are almost boxing them into playing this style Mm -hmm. of defense. And I think that's really interesting, you know, like do they have a choice? (laughs) Like if they weren't playing the style of defense, would they be able to survive? Because I mentioned, you know, 26th and half court offense, like what's that going to look like if they're not creating these, these open court opportunities. So I think I'm, I'm interested to see moving forward. Like, does any of that normalize? Like, are they striking maybe a healthier balance? Because the, the thing that's working the best right now is the extent to which they're crashing the glass and not getting burned in defensive transition totally like um number one in limiting opponent transition opportunities while still being number one in offensive rebound rate that
1: is remarkable this i'm i I was so happy you wrote this piece a because it's fantastic b because nick nurse's takes on why they lost to brooklyn and dallas were almost like word for word what i got on the reaction podcast and and said so i'm like well uh, you know i'm basically an nba coach at this point but Do you you play video games at all? I don't. Okay, well, there's something called a skill tree. And basically, it's where you allocate your points into different genres of skills. So, like, you know, there's perception, there's luck. of, Of course, you can calculate luck in a video game, right? There's perception, there's luck, there's intelligence, there's all this kind of stuff. And the Raptors, I think, are the starkest example of skill tree basketball in the NBA because this team obviously, and Nick Nurse are so maniacally trying to win despite very clear limitations on the roster that they are trying to skill tree their way into winning basketball. That To me, that is fascinating because the NBA, typically it's like, you know, there's not that much variance to the way that teams play. A lot of teams play very similarly and some have the best players. So those players execute that style the best way. The Raptors are like, we just don't have the players. Fred Van Vliet has made significant strides as a pick and roll creator, of course, and good for him. But he's still, if he's anything, he's above average and like barely cutting it. They look at their team and say, we can't run the most popular play in the NBA. That is a hallmark of the best teams. What the hell do we do here? So yes, there's some clever and quality drawn up set plays. they, sprint and handoff, sprint and handoff, sprint and handoff, try and create something from nothing. But they also decided, why don't we just change everything defensively and see if we can shore up the offense? Because they understood, well, we have to score. We can defend as well as we like, but we have to score. It It is fascinating to me. One of the most intriguing things I've seen on a basketball court in years. And of course, that comes with the caveat of every fan looking onward and saying, Why are we allowing so many corner threes, especially after, you know, NBA media has fetishized the corner three and even to the point where it gets on like inside the NBA, right? That's when you know something's gone mainstream. And as you point out in your piece, the Raptors are actually pretty lucky, pretty fortunate on those shots so far this year. But it just looks so unorthodox because they're allowing the very thing that the NBA and NBA media has said, don't allow this. And the, a bunch of offenses, you know, shout out to Harala Bob for putting the, the spacing boxes on the court, right? When the Mavericks practice, you sit here. This is the best place to be when you're spacing out the floor, that stuff. And the Raptors said, the very thing the Mavericks want, that's what we'll give. We're trying to do something different. I, I'm not even asking a question. I'm just exasperated. I'm just like, wow, this is crazy to me.
0: Yeah, and I think it's, you know, the, I guess another in just sort of watching the Raptors and and trying to figure out how the offensive rebounding thing was working. I think there was like another example of, okay, your team is built in such a fashion. Here is the limiting factor. How do you turn that into an advantage? And I think, you know, one thing I found is like pretty much every Raptors possession, there's three guys below the free throw line, sometimes four. And this is a team that shoots fewer above the break threes. I think than all, but two other teams. So they're not scaring teams from above the break. Why station guys there that other teams are just going to help off of why not have those guys, whether they're cutting, whether they're in the corner, whether they're in the dunker spot, use that to your advantage. Have a bunch of guys who are close to the basket who can crash uh, as opposed to just having them chill above the break, basically getting ignored. Like it's always sort of um, one thing feeding into the other. And I think you know, a lot of times, whether rightly or wrongly, like we think of, of like the separation of offense and defense, like we think of them as being siloed, I guess, and two totally different entities. But I think, you know, this Raptors team more than any that I've really honed in on ever before, like there's so much interconnection um, between those two sides of the floor and so much interconnection between like their, their weaknesses and the things that they have decided um, they're going to focus on and focus on doing well. Uh, and I think it's it's a really intriguing team building project. And I'm, I'm very curious, like, can they move forward in this fashion? Or ultimately, like, if they get to the point where, okay, we've done the rebuild, we've done the kind of early development phase, now we want to focus on being super competitive. Does that then ne- uh, necessitate like a, a real roster shakeup that allows them to play in a bit of a less high wire fashion. Um, because right now, like, <laughs> I don't know. It's just, it, it's it's really thrilling to watch because, of, because you're just not sure like whether it's going to work or not. And, you know, can they make it work for them? But like they play with fire in so many different ways. Like if they start to get serious about competing, I just don't know if they can keep doing it.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, it, the diminishing returns that we talked about early on. In other ways, you know, you wonder how scalable is this really? But I do think in some regards, anytime some team tries to do something, there a, tr- a mini trend out of that comes out of it, right? They discovered something worked. And as you say, like, not worrying about spacing above the break if the defense isn't going to worry about it and getting back on defense, so crashing and then getting back, thats that's obviously coaching and that's diligence and effort on the players' parts, which once again, as you said, like, having Fred carry the load he does at like 40 minutes a game is like, is this tenable really? Because you can see how much work is being put on the floor. But that to me is a very unique perspective on how to play basketball on offense. It's like, we're not going to do something bad. We're just going to try and do all the things we do very well. And this, this particular thing, you know, like pick and role play, a lot of it is dictated by pull-up shooting handle and like first step the Raptors are do not have a lot of that on the roster. So they say, okay, we won't do as much of that, but they have a bunch of length and they have a bunch of hardworking players. So they say we can create extra possessions on offense and we can ask those same guys a to pick up the ball quickly so that you stall those offensive possessions from starting quickly. One guy sticks the ball. You make sure that outlet pass doesn't come rapidly and everybody hurries way back like that might be the hack that they've picked up on. That might be what translates maybe not to teams as a whole, but lineups that we see, maybe bench squads and stuff like that into the future. I think that part of it may stick, although I have less optimism for the defense.
0: Uh, Yeah, and then again, like with that and something I asked uh, Precious Achua about, Precious is like, his defensive transition numbers are like the best on the team, which I feel like Precious really needs a win right now. So let's give him that. <laughs> um, like they, they defend way better in transition with him on the floor. And um, he kind of acknowledged that the the def- defensive versatility essentially allows them to cross match in a way that makes mm-hmm. transition defense tenable for them in a way that it might not be for some other teams, right? Like anybody who's running back and kind of just grab the nearest open guy, um, and maybe they need to fix the matchups from there. Maybe once the defense gets set, they can execute a scram, but they feel pretty comfortable with any matchup that they wind up with in transition. And that is maybe something that's really helping them when uh, when they're crashing and missing.
1: Yeah, well, you're right on. Like, they they scram really well. And scramming helps when you're long. Like, if you have long guys who have long arms in the middle of the floor while you scram and stuff like that, Uh, it's much easier to make it work so yeah the the cross matching and the scramming makes it so much easier but yeah i'm very happy you wrote this piece i thought it was awesome and obviously you know as you're tweeting out like gosh i'm trying to figure out how the raptors are coming together to get these numbers i was like oh yeah none of this fits together what is the missing piece and you're like let me go find that missing piece so i'm very thankful for that joe as far as uh your brain finding things front court stuff (laughs) I I really appreciate it. Yeah, yeah. Oh, dude, I I love the stuff you do. So we'll we'll just put that out there. But okay, Uh, Precious, Birch, Scotty, Pascal, OG sometimes, front court stuff, starting lineup. Do you have any designs on what you'd like to see the Raptors running out there to start each game, provided that everybody's healthy? Yeah. um, I (sighs) – Rashawn Holmes, right at
0: the. Five. I mean, yeah, <laughs> we're not going to go there. You and I, I mean, yeah, we've been we've been on the Rashawn Holmes train for a while. Uh, very disappointed that he's not a Raptor. Man, he's having a good season. Um,
1: Jackson Frank but, posited that he may be near All Star level, and Jackson Frank and knows ball.
0: It's uh, it's pretty hard to argue. Like seventy two percent true shooting, and he's playing excellent <laughs> pick and roll defense. Like. Yeah. um, It's just, this is another interesting thing, I guess, about the Raptors team building project or experiment, whatever you want to call it. Like it seems like they have de-emphasized the center position and it's hard. It's hard to know what's what in situations like this because, okay, have they de-emphasized the center position because they don't think it's important or are they just waiting until the right opportunity comes along to to find that cornerstone big man? Like there were reports that they wanted to move up in the draft to to take Evan Mobley. So mm-hmm. maybe it's not just like they they have deemed the center position a lower priority. Maybe it's just that like the right guy hasn't come
1: along. And I believe those reports, by the way. I I do think that's. I think they wanted sure. Mobley very bad. Yeah and, and, why and you? obviously like, why wouldn't you right yeah totally <laughs> yeah. um so i think it's just
0: we've seen the downsides of that obviously last season we don't have to rehash how that went but even this year like it's there are unintended consequences to that and you know you and lewis pointing out that the, the aggressiveness with which they help off the corner is probably in part a byproduct of their lack of traditional rim protection like that's, that's one thing right there where it's like, okay, you don't have this. So you have to do that. Um, I do think, you know, looking at their center options, I would probably prefer they start chem. Um, I think we saw last night the limits of the small ball lineups. And it's like, there are, there are centers in the league that are going to do worse things to you than what Isaiah Stewart did last night. And, Isaiah Stewart really had his way with the Raptors' front line. So um I don't know if, if Bert, like, he, he's still maybe not 100% because he didn't really factor into that game very much. I think he played, what did he play, 15, 16 minutes yeah. uh, and wasn't especially effective when he was out there. But I just think in general, like, he's been the Raptors' best center. He is the guy I think. I, I guess I don't know. Maybe maybe you'd have a, a different perspective on this. Defensively, I think he's been better than Precious. But to me, that the golf has been significantly greater at the offensive end. Like he can be an actual release valve, uh, and we've seen a lot of him kind of like cutting into open space. It's not necessarily always on the roll, but um, just sort of flashing like toward the free throw line and his ability to hit push shots. Uh, and just make the defense pay in some type of way for ignoring him is something that we haven't really seen Precious do at all this season. Like, in in that game against the Sixers, I think, like, Andre Drummond was an absolute menace at the rim, and for the most part, it was because he was, like, completely ignoring Precious, like, just roving off of him and getting away with it time after time after time. So, um, I just, yeah, like, I think that that Birch – ought to be the guy who is starting Uh, i think that makes it really tough deciding who's going to go to the bench i really think they need they need trent in the starting lineup for his shooting and spacing but um then i don't know i don't know who goes to the bench like uh it's uh i haven't thought enough about it to to have uh a decision that i've come to yet but (sighs) tough
1: yeah really tough and this yeah go ahead well, I was just gonna say. Uh, by the way, like as somebody who had qualms about Gary Trent um, headed into the season, although I I haven't been wrong about any of my uh, as far as my projections of where his offense would be and that kind of stuff, he's he's completely blown the doors off of the defensive stuff, and I think yes, he's a highlight defender to some degree. But he's still, you know, a very, very valuable as well. So like credit to Gary Trent on just having you know a wonderful start to the year, of course. But when we talk about precious and how there's significant drawbacks to him, offensively, I think that's true. Sometimes people focus on the defensive end because I I don't understand why, but I think people always default to just saying big, suck at defense. And I think that's just messaging and media after hearing so much stuff for so long. But it's the offensive end. Precious has no idea how to interpret space. Like, and you can see Pascal is a guy who sometimes it seems like he's wandering on offense because he's just waiting for his turn to have the ball so he can create. You understand that a little bit. But Precious is a guy who will be involved in an action and will just walk over to another teammate. Like he he'll just be walking around the court no idea how to cut into space, no idea how to find shots for himself as an off-ball guy. And so that's very limiting. And we talked about, you know, okay, how does Pascal and Scotty as a tandem project? Because there's an overlap in skills there. And this is the number four overall pick in a very good draft and a former All-NBA player who the route to All-NBA may be difficult, but the route to All-Star status probably isn't that difficult for Pascal. If we're worrying about those guys having skills overlap, precious what he's shown as a ceiling guy offensively those skills overlap with both those guys too except they're just coming at a way worse position than both of the aforementioned players but defensively i mean he's the best rim protector on the raptors currently the numbers are really kind to him there although the raptors don't allow a ton at the rim that's just not their scheme so you wonder like in volume and in effectiveness like What is the end goal there? And then, of course, there's some people who would respond like, you have to think about the future when you play Precious. You just want to give them minutes and let them figure it out. But at the end of the day, I do think I'm I'm on the Birch train as well because I don't think it's tenable to ask Pascal and OG to just end Scotty to go and get murdered every night by the big men of the league because there's a lot of big guys. And uh, I think Kim would help out with that immensely. Future be damned. I think you... You just keep playing good players and then hope that the younger guys uh, hashtag get good or something like that.
0: Yeah, I think if if the team was no good this season and there was really no hope of them competing for a playoff spot or even a play-in spot, then I would maybe understand that a little bit more. But I think this team is good enough that they deserve to be given the best chance to win every night. And I do think that that involves starting Ken Birch, at least when he's, you know, back up to a hundred percent. Because like you mentioned at the offensive end, it's just uh, yeah. Precious. Just he gets in people's way. Like that's just a reality. Uh, the feel just isn't quite there yet. Um, but but I'm glad you pointed out his rim protection. And actually I think def- as a defensive rebounder, he's been pretty good. Uh, mm-hmm. Also, you know, given that he is a little bit undersized as a center and more slender of frame, Ben Birch is, I think he's been pretty good on the defensive glass. Um, but you know, to your point, yeah, the the Raptors don't allow a ton at the rim. And so I guess you wonder, okay, if that's the scheme, then does it matter? Like, do you want to be leaning toward the better rim protector? If you're already doing your damnedest to suppress the number of attempts that you're giving up at the rim? Um, I, that's like an interesting trend in general I think because I noticed the same thing when I was writing about Miami uh, and it's the same thing that's happening with Golden State's defense right now where these teams that have you know the Warriors are in the same boat where I don't think they have anyone taller than uh, or I guess Bielitsa but he's not really a traditional rim protector he's also Miami the GOAT starts <laughs> yeah Um, Miami starts Bam, uh, who is a great defender, but he is not a great defender because he's a great rim protector. He's a great defender because he can switch out onto anybody. He's got um, incredible lateral mobility, but as a rim protector, like his numbers are actually quite subpar. So both those teams uh, are doing the same thing that the Raptors are doing, which is um, they are just focusing on rim suppression. And okay, we don't have the rim protection, so we're just not going to let you shoot there. Uh, and Miami, just like Toronto, is giving up an absolute boatload of threes, but that's the trade-off that they they have accepted for uh, not letting teams get into the paint.
1: This is this is a great conversation for somebody to listen to. If their perception of defense in this day and age is that that nobody plays defense anymore, defense is so complex now. It's so smart. Defense is great in the NBA now. Like the the decisions that offenses make defenses have to make are so difficult offensive players are so good now that defenses are in like this constant t- tight wire act i just defense in the nba in this day and age is fascinating to me and for all the points that you laid out is like what are the trade-offs and you know teams get even more like uh what would the term be granule with the trade-offs they're like okay if you know in this side if it's like second side action this is what we're doing here if it's this certain shooter here we're going to top lock and we're going to ask our big to drop low and like all this kind of stuff and it's 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 so complex and it's so intelligent i i love defense right now it's awesome
0: yeah i couldn't agree more i think um, i mean I, ne- I never bought into this idea that people don't play defense anymore i really just think it's How does James Harden
1: score 37 a game if defense doesn't matter, bro, okay?
0: (laughs) Uh, No, offense has just gotten way, way better. And I will say, I do think there has been a a meaningful shift this year with the way that the game is officiated and the liberties that defenders can take that maybe they didn't feel they were able to take in years past. I think that's made a difference.
1: Do you watch I Think You Should Leave? Of course. Of course. Okay, are you familiar with the he can hit? Yeah, yes. <laughs> it's that's
0: just a, a, like an analogy for this NBA season as a whole, I guess.
1: Yeah, well, that's that's something I haven't really... I talked about it a little bit on the episode with Lewis, but like this Raptors team benefits greatly from the new <laughs> whistle. I will say that much. They benefit greatly from the new whistle. They can hit. They can hit, they can hit all the day they want. Yeah. Oh,
0: man. Um, yeah. I think uh, I was actually talking with, with Joe cash, my pound the rock co-host about this on our last episode about um, I posited that Miami had benefited more than any other team from the relaxed rules. And, uh, and he, he put uh, the Raptors up there um, in that conversation as well. And I think, yeah, both of those teams play very physical defense Um And uh, I think uh, it's, yeah, for for those teams and for, you know, really just for the entire league, I think it's been cool to see a little bit more of a a balance um, between offense and defense as far as who is getting the benefit of the doubt.
1: You could, you could be like, I know, I know a particularly uh, funny Hawks fan. And you could you could make a lot of jokes at Trey Young's expense and the whistle relative last year to this year. Although it's it's mostly related to Capella not being, you know, the incredible monster during the playoff run that he that he was last year. And for the second half of the season, for that matter. But uh, yeah, the I, I like the new whistle. And despite, you know, all the hand wringing in Raptor's Nation, I don't think that OG is like an overwhelming victim of it currently. I think he he does not have foul craft yet, and that's something he needs to look to expand. Is there anything else you want to touch on before we get out of here, Joe? I'm
0: curious. I know, I mean, I listen to your pod a lot, so I know you've been really high yeah. on, OG's, on OG's defense this year, and I feel like I don't quite share that opinion. So I'm wondering if maybe you can talk me into... OG having been, you know, an all defensive caliber defender this year, because I think by his standards, he's actually been disappointing this season. And I don't know if I would necessarily even advocate for him to be, you know, if the season were to end today, which is stupid, it's been whatever, 13, 14 games, but like I don't think he would necessarily be in that mix. And uh, I'm curious what you have seen from him that makes you feel like he has still been, at that top, top level as far as wing defense goes.
1: Okay, this now, this is a tougher case for me to make after the past week. But I guess I'll still try to make it. The Brooklyn game where OG guarded Griffin, KD, and Harden all in the same Chicago action is probably... And that extrapolated across a a lot of the two-man and three-man actions that he's involved in. I think there's a lot of things that NBA teams like to do. You know, they're staples of of NBA offenses, right? Like these very simple little actions that teams run all the time. Pistol, uh, Chicago, Miami. Like just three-man or two-man actions that are super easy. And OG, I feel like with his ability to switch and his point of attack defense complicates all the smallest actions that teams are running. And I see him quite routinely do this to great effect. And not only it doesn't always end up with him as a steal or with a stop, but I find that a, he is able to turn defense into offense in, in a very, very good way. And his true shooting percentage thanks him for that. Uh, the, The dunks are helping a lot. And his ability to get out and run um, with other players after he creates the initial like bobble from a player because he's attacking yeah. them, and I still feel like he's hunting handles like in, in isolation defense. Despite getting got, uh, he got got by Cade last night, and sheesh, that was a nice move by Cade. That the yeah. the cross cross like he went he went to his right, that he went to his left, then he finished with his left. It was so nasty. Um, OG got got, but I still think. He's able to suppress shots. And anytime OG has a bad turn of defense, I typically find myself attributing it to shot making a lot of the time. And I don't find him getting beat all that often. Although if you were to say currently, like you don't want him on an all defense team, I I don't think I'd fight you on that. Uh, The past few games haven't been super great for the OG as the world's best defender agenda although his ability to complicate the easy things that nba offenses just kind of want to walk through to get to easy baskets and stuff like that that is my biggest thing for him and i think that dials up according to the game but maybe we've reached the part of his career where he starts to dial and undial accordingly which maybe wasn't the case prior
0: right yeah so i had i guess maybe a couple theories about this i mean one is the simple one which is just, just that like he has scaled up his offensive workload. And A lot of that, step backs. tough. <laughs> and that tends to come with the corresponding dip at the defensive end. But, you know, I think to me, I feel like there have been more like uncharacteristically bad fouls this year than years past. But, but even more than that, I just... And I know with OG, it's always been about the on-ball defense. Off-ball defense has never really been his specialty. But I think like there's been a lot of off ball mistakes that I've kind of tracked where, um, you know, you mentioned like Cade's manipulation, not even talking about the one-on-one stuff where he scored on OG, but like, uh, looking off, um, the tag man. And like that happened a couple of times to OG where he got totally hoodwinked. And I-, I wonder if maybe, cause I feel like this happened to Kawhi a little bit too after, you know, he had established his reputation as being maybe the best one-on-one defender in the league a few years back where teams just sort of stopped trying to do that. Like they just made a point of avoiding him. And I feel like maybe teams are like making more of a point of making OG defend off ball and just not involving him in action. And I feel like that is potentially part of the reason that... Um, there's been that slippage. It's like he's not really getting as many opportunities to do the thing that he does best on defense. Like teams are kind of picking at his weaknesses and and veering
1: away from his strengths. And, or maybe, um, maybe the two best things as far as, um, I think he's great as the little man in help side. But as we talked about, the Raptors aren't as interested in these hard rotations from help side defenders. They want to pull from the strong side and make sure that that help side rotation doesn't come out. And he like, that was part of his ascension as an all-NBA level defender was that he was way better guarding the rim and help side than any wing should be. And that helped also validate uh, what the Raptors were running defensively against the Celtics in that series uh, that went seven as well. So that's really interesting.
0: Yeah, and I mean, you've also pointed out before that even when he is guarding one-on-one, which would seem to be an ideal situation for the Raptors, they still tend to shade a lot of help his way where it's like, you know, maybe trust OG to handle this assignment uh, and let him tackle it one-on-one. But um, I just think that that stuff's all really interesting. And, and it, it's contributed to the, them being like way, way better defensively with him off the court, which uh, I don't think has really been the
1: case in the last couple of years. But yeah. He, t- to your point, he, given his gifts, uh, he should be a better nail defender, like the uh, full stop. He should be better at that. And uh, yeah, maybe, maybe a slight weakness defensively that teams have found, or maybe it's just a, a tough run of play and a correlated with that, that shooting. Well, the uptick in usage on the other end, post-ups are like, you know, they're a grading type of offense to go into I, I've heard. So uh, yeah, that that's very interesting that you bring that up though. Um, I would be more bullish if the last week of defense hadn't happened, but, uh, I'm perfectly happy to just sit on my hands and say, yeah, uh, as far as, uh, OG being like less than, uh, we've seen in the past defensively. Yeah.
0: I and mean, maybe I'm also being a prisoner of the moment by like focusing more on this last week of defense than what hater. you did in the
1: first couple of weeks. You're a hater, Joe. That's what everybody says. They're shouting it from the rooftops. <laughs> Emma Emma Brown will be distraught. I
0: was gonna say, I hope
1: she's not listening to this. I think she'll listen. Bad news bears for you. Uh, yeah, outside of the OG stuff, anything you want to talk about?
0: No, I mean, I think we we hit on all the stuff that's like interested me most about this team so far. So um, I think that was great, and I'm happy to leave it there.
1: Did I vex you?
0: Did you vex me? I mean. Yeah. Like I'm, I'm in a constant state of vexation, just trying, you know, talking in circles, trying to, <laughs> trying to talk myself out of the corners that I talk myself into. I don't know. Yeah, of course.
1: Is, is there a particular corner you like to talk yourself into that you like to occupy?
0: Uh, no, I mean, it's more just like, okay. You, I mean, you know, this, like I, you host multiple podcasts. I host one and it's, I can go into those with like a certain level of preparation knowing what specifically is going to be talked about and you can just sort of lay out you know in your mind at least like have it mapped out like where the conversation's going to go um but when you're a guest it's like you're not really in control of the conversation and it's going to take you to different places and you kind of just have to I don't know I guess do some verbal gymnastics sometimes to uh figure out what kind of point exactly you're trying to make um and I feel I do feel like that happens to me a lot, where I get lost in whatever I'm saying and don't remember really what point I was trying to make in the first place. So I hope I didn't do that too much on this episode, but I'm sure it happened at various points. I'm very happy
1: with the output. I also think it's... In Saskatoon, there was an indigenous building that they built for the indigenous students on campus. And they attempted, as far as I know, to build it without corners. If I'm wrong about this, I don't think it's maliciously, so my apologies. But I'm saying... You need to turn your brain into a, an indigenous building uh, via indigenous architecture so that there is no bad things existing anywhere. It's just a round uh, Joe Thought Bowl, you know, round Joe Thought Bowl. How's that sound?
0: Yeah, a lot of circular logic incoming in, yes, in my round yes.
1: Thought Bowl. Swirling, yes. Round Thought Bowl for Joe. Uh, Joe, uh, you know, it's time. it's time to plug, if you would like to plug. And I just love to have you take the advantage of it.
0: Well, you did a really good job of plugging the piece that I wrote about the Raptors. So I don't think I need to say anything more about that, but you can read it at the score or find it on my Twitter page. Uh, I'm on Twitter at Joey underscore W, you know, W spelled out phonetically. And uh, I tweet out all my stuff there. I don't just write about the Raptors. I write about, I try to write about, you know, pretty much every team in the league and give them fair and equal coverage. Uh, So you can read me at the score. You can follow me on Twitter and uh, it would be great if you are interested uh, to uh, listen to my podcast, uh, my general NBA podcast with Joseph Cacharo. It's called Pound the Rock. Uh, We put that out once a week. And uh, yeah, listen, subscribe if you are so inclined. Uh,
1: Listener, I will also say Joe does a fantastic job covering the league. But before you get into his stuff, you should know his Pacers fixation, I fear, may turn into a calves fixation. Just kind of kind of trying to chart the projection of his work. I think that may be likely. Uh, what do you think about that, Joe?
0: Yeah, I mean, they do sort of fit the, be- the bill as this, like, you know, small market Midwestern team that's on the upswing right now with a really exciting young big man. Um, and and I Garland. Did, yeah, ooh, yeah, Garland's. Garland's really fun. But I just, uh, man, I love their front court experiment. And I think it's super cool that it's working as well as it has been so far. I've long been a fan of Jared Allen. So it's great to see him thriving. And I mean, Mobley, like, you know, I, I was, again, talking to Cash about this on our podcast, but I posited that he was the most exciting uh, big man prospect since carl towns um but then i kind of backtracked because i wasn't sure if zion counted as a big man but you know he's up there among uh the most prodigious bigs that we've seen come into the league in the last decade or so so um i'm really really excited to track his growth over the next little
1: while first person i've heard refer to carl anthony towns as carl towns in quite some time i will say And also uh, Zion is not a big man. He's an all caps big man. You know, he's, that's who he is. His heart and soul, he's just bigger than everybody else. And uh, we're all subjected to his domination. When he finally comes back healthy, that is, which it's been really sad that he's been injured. But Joe, thank you so much for coming on, brother.
0: Thanks for having me, man. It is always a pleasure. You do a great job and I really appreciate you.
1: Hey, thanks, man. And listener, I hope you appreciate me too. I hope you appreciate Joe. Go follow him. Uh, The piece he talked about will be linked or the piece we talked about will be linked. So you can just click on that over at Raptors Public if you're there to listen. Otherwise, uh, go to Joe's Twitter and click follow and then respond W or L under every single take he has, please. Uh, Thanks for listening. Whether you got into this in the morning or at night. Have a blessed day and... Goodbye.